So Jeff, are there any stories that have been really shaping in your life? I can think of a few, but I remember we had this set of encyclopedias called the the Childcraft Encyclopedias. And one of those volumes in the encyclopedia set was called Stories and Fables. I came across this beautifully illustrated story that captivated me. It was about this uh, boy who was found inside a peach. So peach boy. And he was floating down a river as a baby and his would-be parents drew him out of the water. I mean, it's, it's not completely unlike the Moses story. But in any case, I think Japanese folks know this fable as the story of Momotaro. And my parents actually recognized the story and kind of filled out the details for me. So long story short, his adoptive parents pulled him out of the water and raised him as their own son. And he shows this superhuman strength and ability protecting his parents from the demons and the monsters around him. Now, of course, my parents turned it into a story of filial piety and impressed upon us kids the need to treat parents with respect. And to this day, I have to say, filial piety is one of the cornerstones of my experience growing up and even the way that I think about parenting now. So yeah, these stories, they have a real effect on us. How about you, Emily? What stories still impact you? I used to be really into Cinderella. I enjoyed the movie, the Disney movie, and the Disney store at the time had a lot of cool, like, Cinderella merch. (laughs) (laughs) And I would collect some of the more classic-looking Cinderella stuff. And, of course, now I'm like, wow, okay. (laughs) I see that there are some problems with this story. And, you know, just obviously sort of the role of women in the world. And so now I have a much different perspective on that story and myself in relation to that story. Well, today's episode is about the stories that shape who we understand that we are. So in the human experience, we're now talking about the realm of identity. So today we're talking with Dr. Joy J. Moore. She is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, professor of biblical preaching, and she also serves as the vice president for academic affairs and academic dean at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. She describes herself as an ecclesial storyteller seeking to encourage theologically framed, biblically intensive, and socially compelling interpretations of scripture so that we can understand the critical issues influencing our formation and contemporary culture. We also talked with Dr. Nancy Wang Yoon, who is a sociologist and expert on race and racism in Hollywood. Nancy is the author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. That was out in 2016. And she's also the co-editor of a book called Power Women, Stories of Motherhood, Faith, and the Academy. She's the host of the Disruptors podcast and... She's currently writing a book about her life through the films and television shows she grew up watching. We also would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Emerging Scholars Network. The Emerging Scholars Network is a national network, primarily online, within InterVarsity's graduate and faculty ministries. And they support those on the academic pathway as they work out how their academic vocation serves God and others. They encourage and equip undergraduates, grad students, postdocs, 
and early career faculty as they navigate each stage of their academic vocation. They have a fall discussion series. We'll put the link for their website in our show notes so you can interact with lots of different authors on some interesting topics over the fall and early 2023. We hope you enjoy this conversation, and I encourage you as you listen to think about what stories have formed you and what kinds of stories you think are compelling and that you want to tell in the world. So maybe we could start with you, Joy. If you were at a dinner party and someone was asking you, what do you do? How do you explain to folks what you do and also why you enjoy it? I like to say I work with media because my students think the lecture format of communication is so last century. <laughs> really, though, I don't find myself having to pay what I do because people have preconceived ideas of what you do when you say you're a professor, unless I, you know, say what I teach and then that gets interesting. Or similarly, when I say I'm a pastor, Sometimes I have to apologize for thinking that as a woman, the most important news I have for all the world is to say that there is a God who is good and hasn't given up on creation being good. But generally, I just try to be an equal opportunity offender with folks and tease them into being curious about what it means to say, I tell stories from the Bible with a theological twist. Mm, that's great. Thank you. Nancy, how about you? Well, I actually have a very similar self-definition, <laughs> only because I am in between. I am transitioning from being a professor to a DEIB consultant. But before I transitioned, I did a mind map of what is it that I love doing, right? So I do a lot of things. I write. I'm a film critic. I am an author. I, I also host a podcast and I go on TV and, and do documentaries and radio. And I realized that at the core of it all is that I'm a storyteller, just like Joy. So being a storyteller based on my training as a sociologist. So actually, I do probably identify myself professionally as a sociologist, because even if I'm no longer a professor, I'm always a sociologist. And I, I call myself a sociologist of the people now, because that's that's my affiliation. I do it for the people. And so, but why I, I love what I do, I think I want to see myself as bigger than just the one thing that I do professionally for money. But I want to think of myself as someone who is interested in many things and hopefully love is behind all the things that I do. Mm, amen. Great. Thank you so much. This is a great tease for what's to come. So Joy, could you tell us a little bit more about your research specifically, the kinds of stories you tell, and how do you think that's important to the world, and, and maybe what has that meant to your own life? I thought I was just going to be a preacher. Actually, I renegotiated the contract with God when I found out that to say in high school you're going to be a preacher meant you weren't going to be popular. So I said, <laughs> you said teach, right? That's what you meant. And I, I thought I was just going to be telling the church's story, right? And as I began to do research, I realized that what captivates us, what, what compels us is not commands, but it's being drawn into events, opportunities, experiences, and that's described as storytelling. And so I started looking at the stories that form 
a community. And in many ways, that's what the Bible is. It is a community forming story. And people who share this story are drawn into its vocabulary, therefore its way of seeing the world. For me, when I think of that in terms of teaching, it helps, I think, in what the church is supposed to be as a hospitable community. Could you maybe illustrate or pick a story from the Bible that's maybe like one of the your favorites that sort of helps shape how you see yourself or what is one that your students like that really draws them into the biblical story? Oh, wow. I mean, <laughs> I love the fact that God tends to resort to drama. And, and we like drama. We like fast action. We like things happening. And, and God likes to resort to drama, fiery furnaces, famine, big fish. So I like to talk about the first 11 chapters of Genesis as the prologue to the human story. So that's sort of why I kind of hiccup when you said tell a story. Um, Because what I like to do is when you're watching a movie or a series and they say, last time on, you know, whatever show we're watching, you have to keep in mind in the beginning, the creator created good and designed humanity to be the presence of God with flesh, good on earth. And when you keep that before you, that God donated dignity to dirt and gave us Mm -hmm. this birthmark made in the divine image and gave us this playground And yeah, one prohibition, and we tell stories forever on how whatever the one prohibition is, that's what captures our attention. So when you're reading the story of the fall, what we call theologically the fall, one reading is to recognize that it doesn't say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the center of the garden. It's just described that it became the center of Eve's imagination and it focused all of her attention. So one prohibition that becomes the focus of our imagination, is that not brilliant storytelling? Mm. And then the result, so a playground, I'm stealing from Sam Wells in in using these Ps, but a preacher loves alliteration, right? So... (laughs) one prohibition and a purpose. And that purpose is what I call to be a divine facsimile. So to truly be human is to bear the image of good, the image of God in flesh on earth, in this playground that we've been given. And the truth is that's what happens throughout scripture if you get the prologue. (laughs) I have a question for you, Joy. So I have in my just analysis of Western storytelling in Hollywood Mm -hmm. that most of the stories tend to take a kind of singular story and the Messiah narrative is so strong, especially in all the action films, right? But I come from, you know, the East and in Taiwan, I didn't grow up with that kind of storytelling. It was a lot of time travel and multidimensionality. And I think that that has to do with probably, this is me just not based on research, but possibly based on maybe a Buddhist idea of reincarnation or just the idea that there are multiple possibilities with reality, right? 
And I think about, I, I'm so drawn to multiverse stories and I have a feeling it's because it's the, you know, the first kind of narratives I grew up with. But I like the idea because I think about the kind of dangers of the singular interpretation of the word. It is these kind of very narrow perspectives of singularity and based on their interpretation must be truth with a capital T, right? I appreciate the kind of idea of multiverse storytelling or the idea that there may be multiple experiences that are all part of God's narrative, but we're so stuck on like the one story. So could you talk a little bit more about what you just said in the context of what I just brought up in terms of multiple lives? I really appreciate that. And I, I am getting drawn into this multiverse in the sense, and I think it's kind of parallel to what I'm saying in terms of you have this story that is told of the first couple and they have a purpose. But what you have is this, if I say archetype, and then you see it played out in multiverse, in multiple different characters, in multiple different settings, and they never are the exact same story. But if, if what we are leaning to is this overarching idea of what I think we are longing for, and that's belonging. And belonging means having had hospitality extended to us and then extending it to others. And the possibility of growing and learning and seeing similarity in the difference. If I use biblical stories, the story of Esther is very similar to the story of Daniel. So you wind up with a person who's in a different culture, who's been given a different name. So they're both exilic stories, but it's similar to the story of Joseph. It's also similar to the story of, of Moses. And if you bring it forward, wow, it's kind of similar to the story of Jesus, the incarnation. And it's kind of similar to Superman. <laughs> you know? So am I describing different ways of telling stories, which is traditionally the Western understanding of that? Or have we always been living into what we're now being introduced to as the multiverse? Those stories in your culture have been told for generations in that way. And our stories have been told for generations in our particular way. And I don't think we lose anything by recognizing that they are parallel and they draw us on the same journey, a journey for community, a journey for peace, a journey for belonging. Does that help? <laughs> well, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think belonging and having value and, and purpose is probably every single story mm. out there, right? Mm. And I would ask you, since you threw one at me, if I can throw one back. So you do this wonderful job, and I'm, I'm kind of deviating a little bit, but you do this wonderful job of describing how Hollywood perpetuates the negative otherness. And I've worked on this idea a little bit, and I and the last few months I've been returning to it. But I would love to have you say something more about that. You described that a little in the question you asked me in terms of East and West difference. But as much as I love the Hollywood story, 
Hollywood also perpetuates the mm. negative divide. Mm. And I wonder if you could say something more about that. Oh my goodness, I feel like I, I devoted my entire life thinking about how Hollywood as an institution really has set the narrative for, especially in a negative way for for everybody on the margins. And and it's it's so hard because even those of us on the margins are growing up with that narrative. And I think that's the most heartbreaking because young people are not seeing themselves in the way that perhaps God intended for them to be fully complex, fully human and, and capable of anything. So those dreams are limited often because we don't see, for example, superheroes. It's only, I think, in the most recent iteration of Marvel that we're starting to see, for example, Miss Marvel just, just completed its wow. uh, run. And there's studies, psychological studies that show that it's a, specifically a study of black and white girls and boys. And the study shows that with every additional hour of television watched, white girls and black boys and girls all have lower self-esteem. Mm. The only group that has a higher self-esteem are white boys. And this, we can assume, has to do with the types of characters, who's in the lead. Even children's programming still has, you know, even if they're multicultural, typically the lead is white and most of the time white boys. And so having having Miss Marvel, having Sang-Chi, having Black Panther, having these superheroes that are incredible, that are cool, that are reflective of our increasingly diverse society is so important for young people and also <laughs> older people like us to just be able to say, hey, we exist and we deserve to be leads because we're protagonists of our own stories. And, and so to be able to see that is incredible. So things are getting better. But if we look at the stats, they're still not according to population parity, and certainly not, especially in lead roles. And also, there's so much content out there. So even if there is proper population representation, people might not be watching those shows. For example, even though Miss Marvel, I watched, I think it wasn't watched as much as some of the previous shows, but the audiences were predominantly people of color mm. tuning in because we're excited, right? And people of color of all different backgrounds. But I'm, I, I just love that. I just read a Teen Vogue article about Miss Marvel, how they represented the partition, which is when India and Pakistan kind of you know, separated and 2 million people apparently were killed during this time. So these, these very important missing history about, you know, the global majority, <laughs> but not told in U.S. history books, not told in even maybe college courses. And it's, it's great that these comic book shows and movies are, are able to, I think, tell the story effectively in a way that perhaps a classroom would not do as well and certainly not reach as big an audience. Well, Nancy, you've given us a glimpse into your what you've described as your life's work, but you've dedicated your life to. And man, those stats about Hollywood and their effects on young people, that, that's really illuminating and concerning. And I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd add to the current work that you're doing, the research that you're doing, and what you're up to. Well, last year I did updated study of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in film. So it was with USC Annenberg. And it was really 
illuminating to show that while the numbers are better for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, the leads are still lacking. So in the top 1,300 films from 2007 to 2019, we only had 44 movies that were led by Asian or Pacific Islander characters, and only six of them were women or girls, and none of those women were over the age of 40. And so we have, you know, missing... I mean, basically, someone like me does not exist in Hollywood films. Mm-hmm. And then we have Everything Everywhere All at Once. It was definitely the top A24 released box office hit of all time, which is really exciting because it's about an Asian American family, working class, and led by Michelle Yeoh, who just turned <laughs> 60. <laughs> and yes, and the multiverse representation of her, that I think I wrote about this. I thought it was truly timely and necessary because I think people only thought of her as maybe a martial artist, but she's capable of drama, comedy. She's capable of fantasy, right? This entire multiverse concept. Actually, people cried in a scene where she was just a rock without a mouth and maybe some googly eyes. So it's just, you know, it's, it's absurdist, but I think that we need something that takes us out of what we think of as realistic portrayals in order to actually see the truth in the lives of people who have been missing from the screen. So we're starting to talk about the main portion of the topic for this episode, which is identity. As we think about what it means to be a human being, we have now a lot more language in the last 10, 20 years about identity. And I was wondering if the two of you could help us get a a little bit of a grip on the development of what has been meant by the word identity. Whether it's from your discipline or your experience of it, how has identity developed over the last few decades or in your discipline? Joy, could we start with you in thinking about the development of the idea of identity? I'm going to describe it again from what identity could be or should be from a biblical perspective. I think that preaching is community forming. It is sharing the community story so that folks know who they are and whose they are and can recognize when they leave the sanctuary into God's broad sanctuary Remember, you know, that there are others who tell this story. So identity for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep emphasizing for me because it's where I want to go as opposed to holding on to the brokenness that has been given to us. So for me, identity is more about relationships. It's the things that shape us and cause us to discover. So a child a parent, a partner, the relationships that, okay, that relationship could be political, it could be national, it could be ethnic and cultural, but for good or for bad, we all start out in this family unit. And we should be able to find that identity as a way of, again, broadening the differences to find that we're the same. And instead, and this in a sense goes back to what Nancy was saying about the biggest mediator of discovering our story, which is Hollywood, it has perpetuated 
the caste and class systems that our culture has used to create identity. I think the work of the first century, where if you really read Paul, what Paul was calling to be practiced was a dismantling of the caste and class systems of Roman and Greek culture. And what caught people's imagination was to see these people who were saying, I want to tell you about what encountering the Christ has done for me. So share bread with me, sit down in this space with me, and I'll listen to you tell your story. And I don't care what culture defines you as in terms of your status, in terms of your ethnicity, in terms of your assigned gender. I want to know what encountering the Christ means for you. Love Seacrest in her book, A Former Jew, talks about how Paul is really redefining ethnicity and the modern categories of ethnicity. And I've worked real hard in this little bit of speech that I've done not to use the word race. And I'm intentional about that because I believe race is a modern construct. And the more that we keep using that term, we perpetuate it with the idea of, okay, I've got to teach you this construct so that we can deconstruct it. Leaning into how Nancy described these new movie presentations, to tell the story, not to simply say, this is how Hollywood got it wrong for the first 20 minutes, and then we're going to spend 20 minutes saying, and they should have done this. No, starting from drop one, that opening credit, and all of a sudden, you're being drawn into a different world, but you're also captivated because these aren't the characters I thought, and yet I recognize this experience. I hear the beautiful alternative to the ways in which our identities are being shaped in the contemporary situation versus what was happening in the early church there. And I confess, even, even I sometimes can very easily lose sight of what's happening in the, in the New Testament there. Nancy, can we turn to you to, to hear how you reflect on the development of the idea of identity? I love living in Joy's kind of narrative about this kind of utopic idea of (laughs) how we can just all be one. And I have so many thoughts, you know, because it's true. It is true. Like that is what we want. That's what we aim for. And yet I feel like I've lived in this conservative world where like, they're like, just we're all Christians. Let's not talk about race. And, And it's like, it's opposite. I think of what Joy just described because they're, They're wanting to erase the fact that we are living in a sinful society where racism exists and they want to pretend it doesn't exist. So sometimes by naming the problem, it's a way to not to necessarily perpetuate, but it is there. There is this, like you said, it's complicated because by naming it and when people don't quite understand what it means, it sometimes reifies something that is socially constructed, right? As young children, we do grow up seeing difference, right? Because that's something that is probably biologically, you know, in order to be able to survive, we have to like see what is this versus what is that. But we don't assign value to those things. That is something that is learned. 
right? But but we live in a, a sinful society. We live in a society that has fallen. We live in a society where even people like me who want to believe wonderful things about myself, I still have internalized negative images that, you know, were were told to me in a society where I grew up as a minority. Identity is very complex, right? There's how I define myself, but that is not divided from how others define me. We are social creatures. All those identities are unfortunately, well, more fortunately, I mean, it's part, we're part of communities, right? And so how we define who we are is contextual. It is historical. It is geographically specific, right? These things shift Of course, in a global society, we have, I think, some global problems like patriarchy and colorism. And so we have lots of religious and cultural distrust, right? All of that is is a social construction. And I think a major part of how sin gets transmitted, right, personally and on a societal and global scale. And so I I think about how, just in my experience, when I left my university, part of the reason was because a Christian, I believe, saying that I was tweeting too much about being Asian because I should be tweeting more about being Christian. And I thought, wow, this kind of divide in identity, you know, that because we're in an era where whiteness is normative, mm-hmm. where somehow that's no longer an identity. That is just normative, right? So when she's talking about Christian, I'm thinking she's talking about white Christian. Asian Christian in her mind doesn't exist, right? So me tweeting about, you know, celebrating being Asian, being Christian, to her, they're not compatible. And yet that is who I am. So this misunderstanding of how other people define themselves based on how I define myself, right? So if I define myself as a Christian, then that is the only way that others should define themselves as Christian. And I think that what I'm seeing in contemporary evangelicalism, is this lack of empathy and an inability to deal with nuance, right? Inability to see how someone else might practice their faith slightly differently than myself. And maybe that makes me feel uncomfortable, but at least I need to listen to that person to understand other people's identity, identities that come together that make people very, very special, right? And that, and also that we can find similarities across differences, we can find solidarity, you know, that Joy and I might be different racial backgrounds, but we're both women and we're both Christian women. So we can find similarities and also try to reach across our differences and and come together and care about the difference in our identities and the similarities and how that makes Joy special, right? How that makes Jeff and Emily special and that we can understand identity as a much more complex concept, even even as it is not based in biological difference, but these social cultural differences actually do result in biological differences because of poverty, because of, you know, discrimination. And the genes actually then start to write itself over time, which is just really, really incredible, right? How, How the social and the biological actually start to affect one another. And maybe we should have an episode on epigenetics because it, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and we need a scientist to come in and do that because <laughs> I am just, I, this is me watching a lot of PBS. <laughs> I'm starting with the end of what you were saying in terms of, you know, that we do, we carry this in our bodies and it makes a difference. It makes a difference because we carry it in our communities, whether that is a food desert or a place where 
we can't pass down generational wealth because redlining has meant that the property values, so owning a home doesn't mean a thing, where it in our culture, the American dream, it's supposed to. And yet this perpetuation identity that has been created negatively to marginalize, I, I was thinking of the way that James Cone talked about blackness. He actually described it as the experience of being oppressed. And I appreciate that because what that means is it counteracts the very establishment of, and I'm going to use the negative vernacular, po-white trash. Because back when that identity was being created, it was created because white meant free. And I would rather be po-white trash and be free than be black and enslaved. But that identity, po-white trash, meant you were oppressed. And so if you take the understanding that black is not the tone of my skin, which there's a whole lot of people you could have had on here that if we weren't on the radio, <laughs> you would be able to see are darker than me. But the experience of being outcast, of being marginalized, of being disenfranchised, of being erased, that experience is what Blackness is. And that's what I reject in terms of saying that's my identity. So I'm going to narrow what that identity is of, of when I define myself as an ecclesial storyteller. This is the story of the church. And I want to be an equal opportunity offender so that people who would say, as you were describing, Nancy, oh, why don't you just call yourself Christian? Well, what did I not say in saying I'm Asian? What, what would make you assume that is a denial of my confession of Christ? You have allowed the lies of our culture, however you receive them, to become the modifier of what it means to be Christian. So Christian is not the primary identity, which this person would be saying they're trying to get you to own, Nancy. No, it's not. Because they assumed, as you rightly described, to say I'm Asian would be a denial of my Christianity. In what world is that? A given. And, and so... I want to be an equal opportunity offender. I want folks to realize that if I'm telling the story of the creator God made known in Jesus, then I am saying God donated dignity to red clay and yellow sand and black dirt and gave us all the same birthmark. Bear my image of holiness in the world. I sound a little Wesleyan because I am, but be a divine facsimile on earth. And oh my goodness. That means I have to begin to say, I see what is wrong in the world. And if I use our Hollywood imagery for a moment, if the only way that Denzel Washington, who is an incredible actor, can get an Oscar is to play a dirty cop, then Hollywood is perpetuating the negative imagery, right? We do the exact same thing in the church. When Jesus has to be a Scandinavian and totally ignore the fact that Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew 
And that messes with our identification of those who believe themselves as white to be the better exemplars of what it means to be Christian. Okay, I went off on my soapbox there. <laughs> so this is this is all really great stuff. I'm trying to figure out, you know, where to go next because there's there's so many good things we could talk about. I'm wondering, we've talked a lot about storytelling and similarities and differences and empathy and recognizing our oneness and also the ways in which things play out differently in the world because of our races or genders or things. So I'm wondering if you could talk about storytelling in the way that which it can positively or both in which specifically some of the ways that it contributes to the negative sense of self, but also the ways that storytelling you see being used well to help tell the Christian story, to tell positive stories about our identity in ways that recognize both the difference and the, the similarities and how we can maybe grow in empathy towards each other. I'm going to jump in. You didn't throw that to either one of us. And yeah. I'm going to jump in because of the way I learned to tell stories. So my undergraduate degree was in elementary education, and I learned to tell stories from a storyteller by the name of Betty Weeks. And one of the things that I particularly remember her telling us, and you know, we were all teaching kindergarten through nine, so elementary school and junior high. We were telling oral stories. So when I teach preaching, I try to get folks to use their vocabulary to create, create images rather than do a quick video clip. But again, it goes back to what Betty Weeks taught, and that's this. When you are telling a story, emphasize the character not the color, the height, the weight. So she said, don't always make your hero tall, blonde, blue-eyed, male. Because the kid whose father is short, fat, and bald will never see their dad as the hero. But if you emphasize in this oral telling the character of looking out for the oppressed, of extending hospitality, of being generous and kind, that kid can see people from their community in that role. The way the Christian narrative has been portrayed in so many ways has taken on these characteristics that removes the Middle Eastern or the Eastern reality of how the Bible tells of the world, removes the Jewishness of the story, removes the fact that when you tell the story in John and you hear the story of Nicodemus, it is immediately followed by the story of the woman at the well. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you have named men, and unnamed women. You have the rich and the poor. You have the story of a woman and a lost coin and a shepherd and a lost sheep. These stories that suddenly have characteristics of gender, of race, of ethnicity, of, of status are told side by side with the same characters of seeking, of finding, of belonging, of becoming community. And so that's moving from oral without the specifics to the specifics that would result in a visual where 
we're not captured by diverse by difference. We're captured by the sameness in diversity. Nancy, would you have anything to add? Or subtract. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I think that, yes, the we as many people out there, we need as many stories because the people that have been telling the stories have all been mostly one type of person in Hollywood. And so they don't know those other stories. It's not necessarily even just, oh, I'm going to exclude everybody who doesn't look like me. It's I'm only telling my story and and I am in the majority. And so Hollywood is starting to change and shift. There's always been people actually telling stories. So the history of Hollywood is that there's always been people in the margins telling stories and making films. If you look at the history of lots of people of color in Hollywood starting their own studios, even in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. But again, those histories are not necessarily told when we learn about the history of Hollywood. So, so many layers of stories that are being erased the actual in real life stories, as well as the fictional stories. And I think that we're in an interesting time where social media is playing a big role in telling Hollywood studios what audiences want. We didn't have that before. We could write letters, but you can't all see it at the same time. You can't actually see something go viral. And, and I feel like I've had the privilege of being on social media and being able to kind of help shut down, for example, whitewashing of roles that are historically supposed to be people of color. And so calling that out and actually making studios recast actors. I actually had an actor get mad at me <laughs> because yeah. I think he thought that I made him lose his role, but it wasn't really about him per se, but it was about <laughs> the kind of general <laughs> patterns of, of, you know, of white actors playing people of color, but not the other way around. And also not enough roles for people of color to even have leads, which has been the history. And so I think that we need more stories in a way that's also told from an authentic perspective, right? So we need not just throwing someone on the screen and saying, okay, so like Green Book or something, which I think won Best Oscar, Best Picture. And a lot of people were like, well, this is not an authentic story. It's very much a white savior story. And a lot of times those are the stories about race that Hollywood likes because it makes everybody feel good, that racism is over, <laughs> that, that white people are now all, you know, good and not racist and helpful. And so these kind of fantasies that are being told in Hollywood and celebrated still exist. And, and yes, I am all about kind of a utopic moving towards a greater utopia. But as a sociologist, I think I'm trained to pick out all the problems in society. And so I think for my book, Real Inequality, I decided instead of having a theoretical conclusion, I did propose some solutions, right? right? And I think that, praise God, that I was able to kind of write it in a time when social media with hashtag Oscar so white took off. And so the Academy actually started making changes because it was a predominantly white male over the age of 60 voting body and also almost entirely U.S. based. Right. So since then, they have made a recruiting effort to recruit women, people of color and international folks. I don't know if Parasite would have made it as a best picture, if not for a greater international presence. People who are from other countries, other cultures, appreciating other kinds of stories, and also finding the universality and the specific 
So all these things, I, I, I'm seeing changes, which is super exciting to kind of be an advocate for something and actually see things happening in my lifetime. That is very slow. But to be able to see in my lifetime, to know that my children are growing up in a different time is, is, is miraculous. Mm -hmm. Nancy, it strikes me that there is a, an ever-expanding ocean of news stories. And the more I listen to both of you, the more grateful I am that the two of you are helping shape both which stories we hear and how stories are told. Maybe I could la ask this last question then. For our parents or maybe preachers who are listening, you know, some of the chief offenders and perhaps the front lines of storytelling, what are one or two ways that you would suggest we pay attention to the stories that we take into our families or our churches, or perhaps the stories that we tell? In other words, how do we make our way through the ocean of stories? Joy, do you want to start? Yeah. I guess that's what I do <laughs> in, in, in trying to get folks to preach well. I, I, and in some ways, I'm thinking in response to, to what Nancy was saying, also in terms of that storytelling is changing. I was thinking that the first stories that were told was the story of creation, fall, flood before Genesis 11. And every religious group tells us some creation story, some need of fixing a problem, and there's a flood narrative. Because prior to Genesis 11, you have all the people groups. And then at Genesis 12, the rest of the biblical story is the story of preserving it through one people group. But all the other people groups had those first opening stories, right? Fast forward, and you have, after the resurrection, you have the church dramatizing the story of Jesus, okay? Then you have the story put in writing. And then you have, and it was always to tell this story of God. But at that same time, because we are fallen creatures, we capitulate it to culture's caste and class system. And the telling of the story stopped being this hospitable story of the creator of all the world and began to be narrowly told about my people. And when Hollywood first got its break, the first motion picture was to perpetuate a negative image of the black body, birth of the nation. And so if that's Hollywood's visual origin story, of course, it is going to be a long time before we reach this miracle of getting back, and I'm going to be religious here, of getting back to the creator's design of all the world telling the story of the encounter of good. I can take that language of miracle because it really is, but it's also a story of redemption. And if we see that, that gets into the sociologist's need 
to point out what's wrong. And it also means the people who tell the story of scripture to provide that utopia, that promise of good, and that together we perpetuate reality check and a hope for something better so that those who come behind us will live into what those who came before us actually experienced as good. That's what I want to teach. Mm. And that's what I hope people, parents, preachers will convey to their listeners. Wow. Storytelling as perpetuating reality check and hope. That's so helpful. Thank you. Nancy, how about you? Tips for one or two ways you'd suggest we navigate the ocean of stories. I don't want to add to Joy. I feel like Joy's was perfect. <laughs> that was just so good. I love that. Reality check and the hope for a better future. I mean, mm-hmm. that is, that is, that's what I want to do, Joy. That is what I want to do with my life. So yes. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. And I think that's what you're doing. I mean, I am humbled by your, your, by your compliment. Thank you so much. Nancy, maybe let me try this last question for you then. <laughs> So, Nancy, we're all enthralled by the silver screen, and there are ways that we are continually being shaped by these stories that we see. Mm -hmm. And I I am likewise encouraged by the new stories that are emerging. But maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how you want us to listen to the stories that are coming from Hollywood. Yeah. So one thing I could say to parents is that I, I'm not a kind of parent that would necessarily limit my children's viewing. I do guide them to see things that I think would be nurturing and enhancing to their identity, to their kindness, to their goodness. But you can't protect them from everything. And I think it's important to be in dialogue, right? And to talk about things that come up that may be problematic. And I feel like now my children are teens and they will call out stuff and say, you know, this is problematic or this is not okay. And and they'll do it with their friends too. So I feel like it's important to empower our young people. You train them with the ability to critically assess and critically watch, not just as entertainment, but to always be aware of what representations are out there and, and what, what the problems are, what the, hopes are and for them to then be able to assess on their own which is appropriate which is not and also to be able to critique it right I remember actually watching the Lego Batman movie was it and I was just watching and I remember my child was probably gosh five or six and she said how come the girl is being passed around like a like a prize and I did not see it because she was so feisty. And there's this actual trope called the minority feisty, which is a trope when they put one feisty girl in an animation, but she saw it, right? Because I had pointed out enough, I guess, in, in previous things that she was equipped to point something out that I hadn't even seen. We need to, all of us, approach media and think about, you know, are we only watching people that look like ourselves, right? especially if you're in the majority culture, right? Are you only seeing things that that look like you? And how and what does that say about if you're raising children to only watch things about themselves? I think it's important for my children to be exposed to content of all different groups, right? And especially groups that they are they are not personally encountering because there's research it's called contact theories that if you don't know any 
people groups in your real life, you will get all the information about that group from the media. Even if it's subconscious, you can't help it, right? Because that's the only way you've ever seen them. Even if that's not the intention or whatever bigotry it is, you need to be able to see a variety of each group, knowing that God has created all of us in a multitude of amazing ways. I was just going to say, when I taught in Kentucky before I went to California, I used to say to my students, because they would say, why do I need to consider this? I'm from a small town in Kentucky. I'm always going to be in a small town in Mm -hmm. Kentucky. I call them Wonder Bread Boxes. Why do I need to know the other? And you you just defined why. And But this is what I used to say. I say, because some kid that you confirm or baptize is going to decide to go to California for college. And what you have and have not said about people who don't live in your Wonder Bread box is how they're going to relate to the people that they encounter. New York East Coast, California West Coast, the diversity is so much different than here in the Midwest. And if you don't tell those stories with the diversity, at some point or another, it may be only one kid from your youth group, but that one kid can make a difference whether they go out only able to spew negativity or able to embrace and and form communities of belonging and equity. So thank you so much. This has been such an excellent enriching conversation and thinking about the power of stories to shape who we are, how we relate to each other, and to be more intentional about the stories we take in as we take them in and the stories that we tell. So thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And it was just great to be able to be on with you, Nancy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joy. I am am such a big fan. I feel like you've just uh, helped me Uh, tell my own story. (laughs) You've been listening to Theology And, a podcast of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Thanks so much for listening. You can check us out on social media. And visit us on the web at theologyandpodcast.com. 